Do you remember our definition? The definition of righteousness. The ability to stand in God's presence without any sense of guilt, shame, or inferiority. You are free from failure and any accusation as if sin had never existed. James 5.16 Effective, fervent prayer of the righteous person will avail much. Glory to God. You are that righteous person. You are that person who has the ability to stand before God without any sense of guilt, shame, or inferiority. Without any sense of sin whatsoever. As if sin had never existed. That's where you pray from. That is your standing in prayer. It is not begging. It is not pleading. It is simply demanding your rights. As a child of God, this is who you are. When you sit at the table with mom and dad, do you look at the mashed potatoes and kind of, please, and you know, get that kind of whining voice, and oh, maybe if it be thy will, mom and dad, you know, could I please have some mashed potatoes? And then if they're not busy, if they get around to it, if it's their predetermined will before the foundation of the world that maybe you could have, no, come on. You just say, please pass the mashed potatoes because they're yours. Everything on the table, everything that's on the table is yours. Why? Because you're a member of the family. And it's all been bought and paid for by the blood of Jesus Christ. Healing's on the table. Prosperity's on the table. Direction's on the table. Blessing is on the table. And it's all ours. Amen? And you're that righteous new creation. Adopted, grafted into the vine who has the right standing at the same... You're just like the prodigal son who came walking up the street and didn't come and didn't have to sit at the second table. No, you sit at the head table. There's no such thing as second-class righteousness. No, you sit up in first class. You sit in first-class righteousness at the head of the table with a ring on your finger, with the shoes on your feet, with the best robe, and you're eating the fatted calf that was killed for you in your honor. That's you. And the older brother and you sit there together. Sit there together. There isn't any sort of second-class righteousness. Prodigal son's father is a type of God who saw him a long ways off and brought him in and sat him right down at the head table. That's us. That's us. So today we're going to talk a little bit about what righteousness is not. That was all review. What righteousness is not. Romans 5, 6, and 7 or actually 5 through 8, are all just really, really good chapters. And we won't go through all of that tonight. But they're great chapters on explaining our redemption from sin. Every minister should be very familiar with, uh, with Romans 5 through 8 because they deal with the whole issue of sin. And one of the things that Paul said, well, if, if sin has been taken out of the way, well, then I can do whatever I want, right? Wrong! No! For those who are led by the Spirit of God, these are the sons of God. Yes. And you're, you're not under the law, but you're under the Spirit. Yes. And so you shall follow the Spirit of God. It's the Spirit of God that's going to lead you and direct you. You do not have a license. Okay? This is very important. Righteousness is, you know, righteousness perverted becomes license. We can just do whatever we want. It doesn't matter. We're righteous, right? Hey, I can get away with anything. No, you can't. Cannot, can't just do anything and everything. You're violating the Spirit of God, which has been given, uh, has been shed abroad on the inside of you. So the Spirit of God lives on the inside of us, guides us, and directs us. And that is our law. That's our guide. And then Jesus gave us the law of love. 
You shall love your neighbor as yourself. It's the new commandment I give unto you. By this all men shall know you are my disciples. If you have love for one another, love is the fulfillment of the law. Love is the fulfillment of the law. And so we walk according to the Spirit of God, and we walk according to the law of love. Love worketh no ill to its neighbor. Love doesn't do any of the bad things. Therefore, love is the fulfilling of the law. You understand, we're not, we're not saying that righteousness is license. Righteousness is how God sees you. And because God sees you that way, if you renew your mind to that and begin to see yourself there, raised up together and seated with Jesus in heavenly places, you'll live like that. You'll act like that. And if you'll live like that, if you'll see yourself there, then you'll begin to live like that and act like that. Righteousness begins, a way, begins to be a way of life. The teaching and the preaching of sin, 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 it's everybody a little lower, 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 and you're thinking about sin. When I was uh, playing baseball in uh, grade school, I'd get out there in Little League, and my number one thing was thinking of, uh, the number one thing I was thinking, don't strike out. I mean, it was so embarrassing to strike out. Throw your helmet down, and you have to, with that long walk back to the dugout, you know, after you'd struck out. No, you want to end up on first base, waving to all the guys in the, in the dugout, and everybody cheering for you and calling your name and stuff like that, but it really stinks to walk back to the dugout. So I'd, don't miss, don't miss, don't, okay, next one, <laughs> next one, don't miss, don't well, don't miss. All right, one more try. <laughs> well, what would you do if you know if you're saying don't miss? You're focusing on missing. But righteousness is really a hit the ball. See the ball hit the bat. Watch the ball all the way into the bat. See that type of thinking, that type of coaching works, and it, it totally works. If you if you watch the club hit the ball in golf, you'll hit good golf shots. If you're thinking don't slice, don't slice, what are you gonna do? Yeah, so. This is what I'm talking about with righteousness. If you'll see yourself as righteous and focus on righteousness, you'll be there. You'll live there. Live there. Live there. Live there. Righteousness is real power, real position in prayer, and it's real authority. Real authority in prayer. You have got that. That's what's been given to you. You don't have to get somebody else who has a bigger resume than you do to pray because you're made righteous. You're made just as righteous as that other person. You don't have to call the prayer line. You the prayer line. You are the prayer line. You've got a direct connection. You've got that. And so I want to talk just a little bit about lifestyles of the saved and sanctified. And I'm your host today, Brandon Leach. He's sort of appropriately named, isn't he, Leach? <laughs> All right, so today we're going to talk about some lifestyles of the saved and sanctified. And every one of them, it seemed, had a defining moment. Every one of them had a defining moment. Kenneth Hagin, how many of you can tell one of the defining moments in his life? What happened when he was 17? He got healed. Yep, he was completely bedridden. He was there was nothing medical science could do for him. He had, all the best doctors in town had seen him. Doctors trained at the Mayo Clinic had seen him. They had given up hope on him. And he'd had more than one pastor called to the house, and usually they wouldn't show up, but one came there and said, in just a few more days, it'll all be over. <laughs> Praise God, we've got a lot better to do when we get to people's bedsides than that. I mean, it, it, don't anybody come to my house with that kind of an attitude, or don't go visit my relatives with that attitude. No, you go in there with a smile on your face. And here, here's something, in the Bible, Peter had to put people out of the room. 
Jesus had to put people out of the room. There are some rooms that you go into in the hospital and there are all those relatives who are just looking at you with a, I think it says it this way, breathing down the back of your neck with a hot breath of unbelief. There's <laughs> just breathing hot, hot, that hot breath of unbelief in the room. You can't get anything done in that environment. You can't. When you're just totally conscious of Uncle Fred over there just looking at you like, yeah, okay, yeah, we'll let the yahoos get on do their thing and stuff like that, and this one's a goner anyways. And you, you need to put the nurse out sometimes. You need to ask the doctor, can I just have some time alone? You need to put those, if there are people in the room who just aren't going to hook up with you, just give me a few minutes, just stand outside the door, look in the window, but just give me a little bit of time. Shambach said he had to do that. He put the doctors out of the room one time, and then he uh, anointed this person with oil. And when the doctors came back in again, this, I think this person was blind, and then that person could see. And the doctor said, can, can I see that oil? He said, it's Crisco. <laughs> it's nothing but Wesson oil. Uh, I got my wife cooks chicken in it. <laughs> That's what he said. My wife cooks chicken with this oil. There ain't nothing about the oil. It's the faith of God and the anointing of God that does it. Amen? You don't have to have special holy oil that's prayed over in the tomb, you know, or something like that that comes from Israel. No, I mean, Wesson will work just fine. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Apply with faith. Glory to God. Defining moments, though. We're talking about righteousness and defining moments. And there are some defining moments in several key evangelists that we're just going to talk about here. Kenneth Hagin, one of his defining moments was that when he was 17, he discovered healing by faith. That you can receive according to your faith. That just by faith, he understood that he already was healed. And if he was healed, he is healed. And if he is healed, he can get up. A healed person ought to just be up and around. Here he is with with paralyzed legs and, and a bad heart throwing his legs off of the bed. And he said he, could, he couldn't feel it, but he heard them hit the floor. Thunk. And another one. Thunk. And then he basically falls out of bed. He's holding on to the, to the edge of the bed and trying to stand up. But no physical, no physical ability to stand up until the anointing of God steps in. Because the anointing of God, a lot of times God will wait for an action of your faith. That you've got to, you've got to show the full measure of corresponding action with your faith. It is, faith is not mental assent. Do you understand that word there? Faith is not mere agreement with the principles of God. Faith is that I believe that I believe that I believe that I believe and and just stepping out over the void like that. It's just, it's go ahead and act as as if it were true. Faith isn't just agreeing, it's also acting. Acting like it's true. So Kenneth Hagin does it. That was one of the, the key defining moments in his life. And another one was then at the, um, in the early days of World War II when for six months he prays the Ephesian prayers over himself that the eyes of his heart would be enlightened, that he would know the hope of his calling, the riches of the glory that, of the things that he has and the greatness of God's inheritance towards him as a believer. And so he just, he's praying the Ephesian prayers, the Colossian prayers, Philippian prayers over himself over and over and over again for six months just repeating those prayers. Because he lived in the parsonage next door to the, to the church and he just left his Bible open to those prayers and would pray them over and over and over again. At the end of that time, the teaching gift began to just open up in his life. A Bible study that he led midweek uh, became more popular than even the Sunday service. It uh, just 
took off. It changed. It, it, these things just changed his ministry and changed his, his life. I want you to understand righteousness. A picture that says it shows a, a knight in shining armor, but cobwebs all over it. And it says, be not simply good. Be good for something. Okay? And so I, what, I, what I want to say here is that your righteousness is there so that you'll do something. So that you'll step out and try some things. So that you'll go forward and really apply this. Righteousness is there so that you won't quit. Righteousness is an understanding. When the going gets tough, you understand who you are. You're the tough that's going to get going. And you're the tough that's going to push through. That's you. And it, it, isn't, it isn't the somebody else. Uh, it isn't if only. No, if only took place. God made you righteous. And so you're the one. You're the hero in the story. You just have to push through and get to the next chapter. You're the hero. Let's talk about a couple more people here. Uh, Oral Roberts' parents prayed for a blue-eyed preacher. Blue, a blue-eyed preacher boy. And that's what they prayed for. His uh, family um, uh, was at least half, uh, I think, Cherokee Indian. Kind of a neat thing to have a blue-eyed son. And uh, Oral Roberts was their blue-eyed preacher boy. He had a terrible stutter as a child. There was just, in the natural, there's no way that he was going to do this. And then at 17, he was hit with tuberculosis, fell over uh, coughing up blood on the high, at a high school basketball game, and nearly died from that experience. But God had told him at about that age that he would start a university. He didn't, I don't think he went on to finish high school. He might have just gotten a, a certificate, you know, like they call it a GED, I guess now, or something like that. He did take a couple of, um, maybe a year or so in college, but he didn't even finish college. God had told him, you're going to start a university. Told him that in his teens. He was stuttering. It just didn't seem like any of these things would ever come to pass. But God healed him of his stutter. And if you ever listen to him preach, his, there's an old tape of his, uh, oh, it's, a, it's his most famous sermon where he sees Jesus in all the books of the Bible. It's a fantastic sermon. Anyways, if you listen to that, it's absolutely perfect English. I mean, he breathes at the right time. It's the most beautifully delivered sermon in the world. He really was an orator, fabulous speaker. And yet as a child, he was a terrific setter. God healed him of that. And he worked through those things. He begins pastoring a church, and God's dealing with him in his heart that you're an evangelist and you're called to heal. You're called to go out and do into the healing ministry. And he's not seen any. He's not really seen anything happen. He's just everyday pastor in a, in a small Oklahoma town. Well, he goes ahead and he believes God, uh, advertises a healing service, and he rents the high school gymnasium or the, or the local theater, I'm not sure which it was, and over 300 people show up. They pack the place out. And he says, miracle service. He's never seen miracles. And he advertises a miracle service. He just steps out and believes God. And so he preaches the message, and he gives the altar call for people to come down to be healed. The, the antiperspirant has worn out a long time ago. He's nervous. And he has them go line up over to the side, and he's hoping he's going to start out with maybe a cold <laughs> or the flu, sore back or something like that, bad hair day, something like that. And, and the very first person in line is a dramatically crippled person, horribly crippled person. And he's like, oh, no. I mean, this is, it's going gonna, it's gonna to go or not go on this one. And uh, here comes this person just flopping up to the, to the front and prays for him, and it's just dramatic healing. He's just as surprised as everybody else. <laughs> and, and, and there were a number of dramatic healings that went through that line. And it, you know, I'm, I think he was praying for that line for several hours going through this line of praying with these people. You know, once something like that happens, then you know, of course everybody you know, goes to the side and, and gets in the line. 
And his ministry took off from that point. You're righteous, not so you can just sit down and watch the other folks do it. You're righteous so that you'll do it. But there are these defining moments that I want you to just kind of to, to just hear. Because you're the righteous. You're the called. You're the ecclesia, the called out ones. Called out. One time God said this to me about, about our church in, in, here in San Mateo. He said, you're the most important people in San Mateo. They're the big shots. There's this group and that group and, and other people that see themselves as the movers and shakers. And God says, you're the important people in San Mateo. What are you going to do with your righteousness? William Branham knew he was called as a child, but really tried to get away from it. And he uh, became a forest ranger and a bunch of other different things um, before he finally answered the call of God that was on his life. A.A. Allen grew up in a horribly alcoholic family. Uh, they were known as just the worst, the worst people in the, in the whole neighborhood. And it was, a, I think it was a backwoods um, Arkansas area. Anyways, he, uh, he got saved because the local church was just down the road from his family. His family would just be out making noise at all hours and stuff like that. And it was just sort of, here's the Allen family and here's the church and bad. But the church started praying for him. and started praying for this family. A. a. Allen came in the back door one day and got saved. And they were just as surprised to see it as anybody. Well, he, um, he ends up getting married. He pastors in Texas for a while. Ends up uh, going into the evangelistic ministry. He prays for the anointing. And begins praying for the anointing. He begins seeking the anointing more and more and more. You know, I got righteousness, I got faith, I got this, but I need, I need the anointing. I need the anointing, and you do too. You need the anointing. And so he starts, he starts praying. And he really starts seeking God for these things. And finally he tells his wife, he says, I'm, and he, he goes and he tries to fast several times and he fails at it. And he goes and tries to, anybody ever been there? Don't raise your hand. And, uh, <laughs> but he goes and he tries to fast. He's in, the, he's in the closet for a couple of hours and he hears the fried chicken going. And he's over. <laughs> there he is. There, after everybody finishes lunch, kind of comes in there and has, has some for himself. But well, anyways, he, he tells his wife to, to bolt the door shut. <laughs> he goes into the closet and he tells his wife, lock the door. From the outside, just lock me in there, because he's going to get it. I mean, he's desperate, and he wasn't in there that long. That he, he just he meant business with God, and he knew he meant business this time. And the Spirit of God just opens up and begins to speak to him. Says, "There's 13 things in your life. Get a pen out, get a pencil out." And he starts writing these 13 things down on a on a piece of cardboard that he found in the closet. Found a found a pencil and found a piece of cardboard, and just the dim light that was there wrote down 13 things that he had to clean up in his life. Defining moment. He'd been given righteousness. Righteousness doesn't mean license. Righteousness means that you're the one. You're the one. You're the one who's going to do it. And God's going to work through you. In, in many of, I would say in 100% of our cases, there are some things that we still have to clean up. There's still some, God says, yeah, I'm going to move into your house. Hey, you know, there's still some, still some cobwebs here and there. And it's, it's up to you to get rid of these things. And so he wrote down 13 things. Well, what's interesting is that that story is rather famous, but as I've researched more on his life, I've uncovered this, uh, this article where he's writing, and he says, I'm writing to you from Oakland, California, where we just had the greatest revival in the history of our ministry. God had given me 13 things. This week, I finally crossed off number 13. He's writing from the position of being a fairly well-known evangelist at that point. It had taken a number of years. So from that point that God gave it, that to him, it wasn't just like the next day he'd gotten all 13 things done. There were some things that he really had to work with. 
really had to work on and work through and work with and accomplish in his life. And so he's in the ministry, and you don't know if, if maybe he's in the ministry with, with, with 12 of those things still just out of control. The next year, 11, and the next year, 10, and 9, and 8, and 7. But in Oakland, California, there were dramatic healings and just a dramatic revival that took place because he'd gotten to 13. He'd gotten to where he nailed down number 13. It's pretty awesome. Absolutely awesome. And it just I love the whole part of the, the process there. That he just he was willing to just get up there and preach in process and lay his life on the line because God called you. God's plan isn't for the angels to preach the gospel. God's plan is not for Jesus to preach the gospel. God's plan is for the gospel to be worked out in churches with people, with authority structure, with faithfulness. God's plan is for people to work with pastors and people to work with leaders over them and, and people under them and, and mentors and other people that, that, that are hard to get along with and things like that. God's plan is, that's His plan. There isn't another plan. That is it. And God wants you to learn to work in that plan and to learn to work through that system. That's the system. That's the one God set up. It, whether you like it or not, that's His system and, that's the way, and He likes it. He ordained it. He set it up. And he honors it. So A.A. Allen's 13 things. And when he got through it, we know Bonky's story about how he uh, was educated in England and went to Bible school in England and then answered a call to Africa. He just had a, had a burning in his heart to go to Africa. And so he goes to Africa. He was flying in these healing, healing evangelists to, uh, to speak to the crowds. And he was able to get some crowds up and bring the healing evangelists in. This seemed to be a pretty good formula. Before that, not much else had really worked, but this was working. One day, the healing evangelist can't be there, can't make it. His flight missed a connection, something or another. His flight was, just wasn't coming in, but the crowd was going to be there that night, and there wasn't anybody to step up to the podium but him. And so it was him, it was his turn to step up to the podium, and he had, he had everybody was coming for the miracles. Everybody was coming for the healing, and all they had was him. And the evangelist had told him, you go up there, you preach the same kind of message that I would preach. You give the altar call. God will do his part. He did, and God did. And his ministry took off from that point. Hallelujah. This is what righteousness does for you. Do you see what I'm saying? You're the one. You're the one. You're the one. You're the one put in that position. You're the one who's supposed to do it. God's going to use you. John Alexander Dowie was really one of the first in, in this line of uh, healing evangelists. And he comes out of Australia. He's a Scotsman down in Australia. He's, uh, he's pastoring a church down there. And uh, the bubonic plague hits Australia uh, hard. And people are dying like flies. Left and right, people are dying in his congregation. And he's being called to go and pray over the sick. And it's just horrible. Just horrible how, how people die in this, in this disease. And, and, he gets caught, and he's just crying out at his desk, God! You know, what is this? And, and, you know, they're looking to him for the answers. And God illuminates the scriptures to him. And he sees that, I think it was um, uh, the scripture in Acts, uh, Acts 10, 38, I believe it is, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power, who went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed of the devil. God was healing the devil was doing the, the oppression. 
And the two don't get their jobs mixed up. It's the devil that does the bad things. It's God that does the good things. How God anointed Jesus of Nazareth. Went about healing all who were oppressed of the devil. Sickness is of the devil. Sickness is never sent by God. Sickness comes from the devil, and it's our job to kick it out. Sickness is under our feet. The devil is under our feet. And he, he sees that all of a sudden. And he goes running to this. And just then, as, as the scripture opens up in Acts 10.38 to him, jumps off the page to him, his door bursts open and says, you know, somebody says that, you know, little Mary is dying. And he runs down the street with this kid, bursts in the door, and the doctor says, uh, I'm sorry. It's, the doctor says to Dow, he says, isn't it, uh, isn't it terrible how God works in his strange and wondrous ways or something like that? And uh, there's the doctor says to Dowie as he goes out, and he says, that's not God who did that. And just, you know, shakes the doctor by the collar. The doctor says, oh, you're much too excited, you know, and, and goes out. And, and Dowie goes and prays the prayer of faith over her, and the little girl lives. And then he goes and he, he gets her brother and sister healed as well. The whole family, nobody dies in that film. Nobody else died in his congregation after that. And, and he just, the light of, of divine healing came to him. And he understood it from that point forward. He comes to the United States after that. He, he sailed into San Francisco, actually. It's an interesting story, and I'll skip over that. But he ends up in Chicago. The World's Fair was going on in Chicago at that time. And nobody saw him. Nobody noticed him. He was a, just completely unknown for at least a year, maybe, a, maybe two years. Divine Healing again came, came and started working again in his ministry. And his ministry just took off absolutely took off. He was getting he was just tremendous opposition. There was tremendous opposition to his ministry in Chicago to the point where he had a group of physicians and the mayor of Chicago because he kept uh, being charged with practicing medicine without a license. And yeah, and it, everybody was just upset with this guy. Nobody, you know, no, none of the power people in town liked him. And so he had an exhibition of what he was doing up on a stage there in Chicago. He had all these doctors and the leading people from the city there on the stage. And then a lady was brought up on the stage with a horrible purple cancerous tumor on the side of her face. Just this horrible skin cancer. On, it just covered up the side of her face. And he just reached up and he goes, in the name of Jesus. And he grabs it rips it off like that. And the doctors all run up and there was just nothing but baby skin right there where, where that had been. Awesome, 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 awesome. And several times, that, you know, they, they tried to challenge him, and then several times they were just shut down, and God was glorified because he could just line up testimony after testimony after testimony of people with their doctor's reports and, you know, and just to show, and they just, you know, it just turned into nothing but a, 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 a church service, and they would haul him into court, and uh, it was just incredible. So who was his understudy? Who was John, John, uh, John Alexander Dowie's understudy in Chicago? John G. Lake. John G. Lake had grown up uh, in Canada, had uh, immigrated, was down in Chicago. Lake had uh, come from a, a large family. He had seen num numerous uh, uh, brothers and sisters die early and die young. And Lake is a tremendously gifted individual. Lake is just a genius. Back when this is approximately 1910, he had become a millionaire in uh, life insurance and uh, in real estate and uh, in the stock market. There wasn't anything that he couldn't just be the best at. He was just a genius. But he was a devout man of God. And he followed, he followed Dowie. And he um, would go to Dowie's meetings and he served faithfully uh, in Dowie's ministry. 
And here is this man who is, is, is just absolutely brilliant, but he's faithful under another man's ministry. He's faithful in serving another man's ministry. And this is how the anointing is transferred very often. John Wimber knows that he's called to divine healing, has a, has a true gift that has been demonstrated, and his wife knows that he has this gift. In fact, his wife takes his hand and lays it on her head while he's asleep and gets healed because she knew that there was just a gift of healing on the inside of him, and they had some denominational problems with healing and stuff like that, but that's how she got healed. She knew that was there, and when, once he started to get the revelation of that, then he began to follow a man named Lonnie Frisbee, who was a, a California charismatic hippie guy in the, in the 60s and early 70s. And so Wimber begins to follow Lonnie Frisbee and just do what he does. He had to, he had to, just, he had to be around that person and follow that person, and serve under that person. And so, anyways, that's what Lake does under Dowie. Lake just ends up just getting tremendous anointing, tremendous anointing, and, and it starts to uh, work in his, his ministry. And, and it's, it's, a lot of it is it's anointing and it's confidence. You know, it's just believing that you, you are the one who can do this too. Believing that, yeah, I can do this too. I can understand this. I can do this. Uh, Lake then goes on off to uh, South Africa, and spent several, you know, a number of years in South Africa. His wife dies in South Africa, and he comes back to the United States and settles in Seattle and remarries. Uh, that's his story. All defining moments where you're made righteous, but now it's your turn to do something with it. Your turn to take it. Your turn to take the ball and run with it. Chip Brim had a revelation from God one time where he's, he's in a deer stand, and, and he sees that, you know, God throws you the ball, throws you the pass, and you receive the pass. But some of us then just catch the ball and then take a knee and kneel down. And that's it. And it's like, what? 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 No. Once you catch the ball, you got to take off running for the end zone. You got to take off running. It's your job. Once you catch the ball, now run with it. Go all the way. And the devil's, you know, trying to pounce on you. But once you've received the ball, now run. Run with it. You've got. You've got your responsibility in this. You take this and go with this. So righteousness is one of those revelations that says, I can do it. I can do it. I'm not quitting. I, I'm, I've been made righteous. And so if I, if I make a mistake, I press through that mistake. I'm going all the way. I'm going all the way through. All the way through. Sometimes we quit too early. We quit too early in prayer. Okay, well, I, I, you know, I kind of gave, I put some effort into this, but not enough. Stay with it. Stay with it. You're the one. And God doesn't have another plan. Let's look at our scriptures. Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers them out of them all. He guards all his bones. Not one of them is broken. These are uh, messianic uh, verses here too. Evil shall slay the wicked, and those who hate the righteous shall be condemned. The Lord redeems the soul of his servants, and none of those who trust in him shall be condemned. The mouth of the righteous speaks wisdom, and his tongue talks of justice. The law of God is in his heart. None of his steps shall slide. The wicked watches the righteous and seeks to slay him. But the Lord will not leave him in his hand nor condemn him when he is judged. The salvation of the righteous is from the Lord. He is their strength in the time of trouble. And the Lord shall help them and deliver them. He shall deliver them from the wicked and save them because they trust in him. Blessings are on the head of the righteous. The memory of the righteous is blessed. The mouth of the righteous is a well of life. Now these are all half verses because every one of them is contrasted against what happens to the evil. 
and we don't want to. I just don't want to overemphasize that 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 side of it, or or balance it 50-50. But what it's there? Why the why God puts those two verses side by side? It's because you're different, and God has a different plan for you as He does for the next person. And the the person who sits next to you at work isn't going to get the same results in prayer, and isn't going to have the same testimony because there's a difference between the righteous and the unrighteous. There's an absolute difference. It works for you and it doesn't work for the other guy until the other guy does what you do. Get Jesus in his heart. It just flat won't work. It's different for you. Yeah, it is! Glory to God, it's different for me. I could tell story after story of working at Washington Mutual and American Savings and where people look at me, why? Well, what's with Alan over here? Why? You know, it's different. Yeah, it is! Absolutely it is. It is because I pray. It is because God hears my prayer. It is because I have rights and privileges that you don't. There is a distinction, an absolute distinction, when the blood is drawn between the righteous and the unrighteous. It's a line in the sand, and you're on the right side of the line. God makes that distinction, and He says, You're mine. You're called. You're mine. So don't read the Chronicle and the Mercury News and and watch CNN and stuff like that and see what happens to the wicked. That's not what's happening to you. You're not in the same ball. You're not even included in that same group. That's not you. That's what happens to the wicked. That's not your group. You're in the different group. Hallelujah. Because the fear of the wicked will come upon him, but the desire of the righteous will be granted. There's a completely different set of rules that you play under. Different set of expectations. Now, the righteous, the upright, the just, same, same, you know, synonymous terms for the same thing. The Lord knows the days of the upright, and their inheritance shall be forever. They shall not be ashamed in the evil time, and the days of famine, they shall be satisfied. The generation of the upright will be blessed. Wealth and riches will be in their house, and their righteousness endures forever. Unto the upright there arises light in the darkness. The, up, the upright person is gracious and full of compassion and righteous. A good man deals graciously and lends. He will guide his affairs with discretion. Surely he shall never be shaken. The righteous will be in everlasting remembrance. He will not be afraid of evil tidings. His heart is steadfast, trusting in the Lord. Man, there's a good one to put on your front door, huh? The integrity of the upright will guide them, but the perversity of the unfaithful will destroy them. The righteousness of the upright will deliver them, but the unfaithful will be caught by their lust. By the blessing of the upright, the city is exalted, but is overthrown by the mouth of the wicked. There are certain contemporary prophets that are often prophesying doom and gloom. You know, if God doesn't judge America, he's going to have to apologize to Sodom and Gomorrah. And things like that, you know, these sort of things have been commonly spoken. But they're forgetting the same Old Testament verse where, you know, Sodom and Gomorrah was preceded by Abraham's intercession. Will you slay the just with the unjust? How be it, you know, are you going to do this, Lord? You're not going to slay the just with the unjust. That intercession was made by a righteous man. Your great, your great granddaddy. Your great granddaddy did it. Father Abraham was the one who did that. And so that's part of your family lineage. That's what you do. And that's, that's, that's your inheritance. Is to be that intercessor that's interceding. I mean, California has got some real bad things going on here. 
I mean, whether it's in San Francisco or in L.A., there's a lot of that. But it's up to us to intercede. Yes. So that the earthquake doesn't just chop this part of the state off and put, throw it in the, in the Pacific Ocean. It's our job to intercede. It's our job to be the righteous and, and be the salt and the light here. Our job. Last thing, faithfulness. Faithfulness is God's way. Faithfulness is God's way. Don't be in too much of a hurry. Don't be in too much of a hurry. I, I got to get around this situation. I got to get through this situation. People are in my way. No, they're not. Faithfulness. You stay faithful in a situation. You stay in a situation and you stay faithful in that situation and serve and serve and serve. And if your heart isn't right, well, then how are you supposed to get promoted? If you're all grumpy about it and, and ticked off at all these other people in this situation, well, then why is God going to promote that? Just because you got a tood? About that, God doesn't promote tudes. God doesn't. God's not into social promotion. Just because you've been in the fourth grade for four years doesn't mean you're going to get to the fifth. He'll lead, he'll lead you in fourth grade, and there are a lot of sixty-year-old fourth-grade Christians. God says, "Get your heart right. Stay faithful. Be faithful. Serve." Remember Joseph. Remember Joseph in the in the prison. Kept his heart right, and God put him on the top. God's looking at your heart. God's watching your heart. You're going to be leaders. In order to be those leaders, you're going to have to have a good heart. Over and over and over again, you're going to see in church life and in ministry, God promoting faithfulness over talent. Faithfulness over ability. And that here comes Mr. Six Foot Seven, I can do this, I can do that, and all this kind of natural, this natural ability. God will promote the faithful one. Class is dismissed.